0: What is the role of compliance in ESG? Find out as Tom Fox and Matt Kelly take a deep dive into this subject and take on a little bit more on this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the Coolest Guy Compliance, or another episode of Compliance into the Week. Today, we're going to uh, riff on ESG. So, Matt, uh, could you, first of all, tell us where you are recording this podcast from? Uh,
1: I am, as often during the summer, I am calling in live from the Harvard Law School campus where I am out on the quad on the picnic tables that they never did take away last year during the pandemic. So uh, anytime it's warm enough. that's hit or miss in new england but anytime it's warm enough to be outside this is usually where i am and that's where i am today under a tree no less while we talk about esg
0: well speaking of warm enough why don't you describe for our listening audience uh the temperature and uh, uh weather for your memorial day weekend
1: oh so anybody in northeast will know that this is terrible Uh, I I promise we are going to talk about climate change and global warming today, but that was not in evidence in New England over Memorial Day weekend, where it was 48 degrees and raining from pretty much Friday afternoon all through Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday until about four or five in the afternoon on Monday. And I got one small glimpse of sunlight just before sunset on Memorial Day itself on Monday. And now finally, we're back to normal here. But uh, yeah, it was a Happy weekend all through Memorial Day here in Boston.
0: Matt, that seems like a great segue into uh, climate change and a broader ESG discussion. I really wanted to start with uh, why you think that uh, compliance should or perhaps should not lead a corporate ESG effort.
1: Well, uh, I think that there is an awful lot that will go into the operation of an ESG program that, Corporate compliance officers already do in various ways. So you're going to need to do some of the mechanics of it, such as finding a framework to build a good system of of policies and procedures, internal controls, uh, documentation of what of your company's effort to move toward a certain standard of operations, not quite identical to a standard of good conduct, but very similar to We want standard of good operations for ethical sourcing, uh, for minimal greenhouse gas emissions, or for the S part, social justice, uh, anti-discrimination and fair labor and gender and pay equity and other things like that. And a lot of that is somehow rooted in or very close to a lot of regulatory compliance efforts. Uh, So ethical sourcing uh, is going to be very similar to a, a human trafficking statute that you might have to comply with in the UK or Australia or California. Um, you might be looking at uh, whatever filings you have to submit to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, those e- EEO1 reports that splice out uh, pay across gender and equity and managerial levels that large companies have to file every year with the EEOC. Well. That's going to be very similar to the data that you collect for, uh, say, any sort of pledge you make for pay equity across racial and gender lines. Um, so there's an awful lot about training, policy and procedure, internal controls that is to to get a good ESG program, you're going to have to do all of that. And I think compliance officers, compliance functions, more than just about any other business function they're already well suited to that. And maybe another way to say it is, OK, if it wouldn't be the compliance program, who exactly would be in charge of this? Then, um, you know, I guess maybe you could argue for the legal department, but a lot of what's rooted in ESG is just you're rooted to core ethical values about environmental protection or equal treatment of employees and workers in your enterprise. Um I like lawyers. I like corporate legal functions, but they are more about minimizing legal liability for the company. That's not the same as picking out some core ethical values or core ESG performance values and building a program to achieve those. So I think compliance would be a very natural candidate for ESG.
0: One of the things that every compliance practitioner does that wasn't in your list is a risk assessment. And today, I think uh, you posted an article about Bank of America and their materiality map. And I was really struck by that. I was wondering if you could describe how uh, BOA came up with that and how that could be used as uh, not perhaps a risk assessment, but a starting point to build out the rest of your ESG
1: functions as well. Well, so the root of that post was that last week I was hosting a webinar on ESG and its overlap with <laughs> compliance programs. And I asked the head of sustainability at Dell, a woman named Paige Motes, and I think many of you might know Paige, and she's a wonderful thinker, a wonderful compliance person, and wonderful now ESG and sustainability person. I asked Paige, what was the hardest part of building a program like that? And she said, it is determining the materiality for ESG that you want to disclose to your stakeholders. Um so it is it is somewhat like a risk assessment, but in a regulatory compliance risk assessment, you're looking at the regulations that are, have to say, you have to disclose this kind of thing, or you have to file it, even if you don't put it in the 10K or the 10Q, you have to file it uh, confidentially with the regulator, You know, but they give you a fixed point. And then you can say, all right, now we build the processes and controls to gather data that shows we are complying with that point and we put it in the report and now we're off. That's the regulatory compliance risk analysis and the risk assessment that you do. but Or for financial reporting, materiality is spelled out in accounting principles, and generally it's going to be, say, about 2% of any line item in your financial statements. Well, for ESG, you don't, at least right now, and maybe that will change, and maybe we could talk about that later, but as of right now, companies don't really have that many fixed points that say this is a material ESG item that you will need to track. You get to define that yourself. So back to Paige at Dell, Paige was saying that a lot of her job at first was developing materiality standards and thresholds and priorities by talking to stakeholders. And that's a very broad range. It can be investors. It can be regulators. It can be your customers, can be your vendors, uh, it can be your employees. I would guess probably, especially if we're, say, for a safer European companies where labor rights are much stronger and you have works councils. Um, but you have to think through what the materiality is. So that was Paige telling me that. And I said, all right, you know, so basically I went and Googled ESG materiality assessments and Bank of America had a very good one that I used to show an example where B of A executives talked with Several dozen. Well, they hired a consulting firm that works in ESG issues, and the consulting firm worked with B of A executives and several outside groups like civil rights leaders, uh, environmental groups and whatnot, conducted an extensive series of interviews to figure out what are the important ESG metrics for a firm like Bank of America, where fair lending might be a very high priority because it's a bank, as opposed to... Um, Conflict minerals, which, you know, uh, Bank of America doesn't do any mining, so it doesn't have to have conflict minerals as a major concern, as opposed to, say, an extractive business like oil and gas or a minerals mining business where conflict minerals would be a very high concern. But anyway, so here's Bank of America doing these interviews. They developed eventually 29. Metrics or points of materiality points they wanted to include in their sustainability reports. And then they map them out on a coordinate map. And along the bottom, it is this issue's importance to the business. Along the uh, vertical axis, it's this issue's importance to stakeholders. And where are these issues on that coordinate grid? And therefore, what is on the upper right corner would be uh, the Issues that are material both to the success of the business and are material to the stakeholders and their concerns about Bank of America. So, for Bank of America particularly, and they have a very nifty chart that I put on my post, um, that would be things like consumer financial protection, employee diversity, um, financing the transition to a low carbon economy, which for a bank that's going to be hugely important for many other businesses not in banking. No, you don't do any financing of others to a low carbon economy, Uh, data privacy and security. Those are all ESG metrics that Bank of America decided were very high priority. It's not going to be the same for all of our other listeners' businesses, but Bank of America's graphic depiction of it and its explanation of its process are very good to help somebody understand how are others doing this, that this is the sort of process I want to follow. And this is kind of sort of the thing I'll want to achieve at the end. So that's why I I did like Bank of America. In my post, I connected to another eight or nine different other ESG materiality assessments that some other businesses have published. Um, It's one of those things where I don't think there's a right answer, but I do think there is a right process to follow. And that's that's the bigger issue for a lot of companies.
0: Matt, I'm concerned that if the compliance function, the corporate compliance function doesn't become more heavily involved with ESG or perhaps even take the lead, Uh, some other function will take that over and compliance could well be relegated to a much more technical function within a corporation, Uh, basically just uh, putting out policies and procedures and
1: controls.
0: Uh, Do you think my concern is uh, valid or really uh, uh, perhaps you don't see it uh, as such a concern?
1: Well, I I think it's a valid concern. I think maybe an equally valid concern would be that nobody takes the lead on ESG issues at your company. And then the whole company gets uh, relegated to being stuck on the back foot, Um, especially if you are a larger business looking for institutional investor dollars. A lot of them really care about this now. And if your business is not in a position to give a good, easy ESG report, uh, even just a private one to you know private institutional investors out there, uh, that's going to be difficult. It's going to put you at a disadvantage to peers who can do this in a certain way. I would compare it to cybersecurity where so many customers now say, we won't do business with you vendor X, unless you can provide us assurance over your cybersecurity. So the better you can be at, Providing that documentation about your cybersecurity. Well, here you go, customer. We're all set to go. Here's our audit. You know, we passed it. We're all great. Let's sign the contract. Unless you can do that, you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. Very same dynamic exists, I think, for ESG. You're going to have more and more investors or customers saying, We want assurance that you are ESG ready. If your company's not ESG ready, then you're going to be at a disadvantage. And Tom, I'll go back to, you know, your original question, could compliance be put at a disadvantage if somebody else does this? I'm still stuck on, you know, who would be better at this than corporate compliance in a large organization? Um, maybe you have a dedicated sustainability function, and maybe that function would work closely with compliance. And that's not necessarily bad if the function is thinking about sustainability, but if you don't have a dedicated sustainability function and that compliance isn't doing it, I'm still stuck on exactly who's going to do this. Is it going to be HR, which sounds like a disaster? Uh, is it going to be marketing? And 10 years ago, that was the case because a lot of people thought ESG was window dressing. So that's marketing. That's what they do. Let's give it to them. I've saw that plenty of times in the 2000s and the early 2010s. Um, so... I don't necessarily know if the ultimate dire consequence would be compliance is put to the sides, or just like your companies, you know, they're not going to be up to the challenge of doing business in the modern world where everybody cares about this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so I, I'm still stuck on who else would run it, and like in what world would a different function be better than compliance to do this? Like, what's the logic process that gives you a good answer there? I don't know.
0: Matt, there were three uh, separate events last week that. Uh, really spoke about climate change uh, within the context, I think, of ESG. The first one was we had a shareholder vote by the shareholders of Exxon Corporation, which elected uh, at least two, perhaps three uh, climate change uh, advocates, uh, preparation for climate change advocates, to the Exxon board uh, against the wishes of the current Exxon management. The second was we had a court case out of the Netherlands, which held that Shell Oil Company has to meet certain uh, climate change goals by 2030 in in a fairly aggressive form. And the third one was uh, EU banking regulators are drafting regulations which require lenders to factor in climate change as a data point for any monies they may lend out to corporations. Uh, each one of those seems to me to touch a different focus within a corporation. Uh, the first one with Exxon is governance. The second, with uh, the court in the Netherlands, is legal. And then the third is uh, finance or uh, borrowing or, or lending money. And uh, do, do you see those as a convergence around climate change that each independently, yet uh, either together or complementary? We'll move that discussion forward in uh, American corporations.
1: Uh, I do, yes. Uh, I'll take Exxon first, and I was intrigued there that I, I don't know how much was Exxon's loss to these um, ESG advocates and investor advocates. How much was this a battle, just that they were trying to keep ESG off of the boardroom discussion, or you know, like, look, folks, Exxon has not been doing well lately. Because oil is going to have a limited future. Um, It's always going to have a future, but that future is going to get more and more limited. So Exxon needed to confront its strategic dilemmas about how does an oil and gas business continue to survive and prosper in a more carbon-free, carbon-neutral, ESG-attuned world, because that world is coming. And Exxon's board didn't want to admit that. And OK, then, in that case, the climate change activists got this through. But I think a big part of their success was just clearly that ignoring ESG as a corporate strategy question, ignoring it wasn't doing Exxon any favors. Its return on equity and its return on assets were not really anything that you would hope for. So why wouldn't you have a boardroom change? Totally absent from ESG issues. Now, you lay all that on. I'm not at all surprised that we saw this. Um, Nell Minow, who is a corporate governance activist out there, many of you might know, she wrote an excellent piece on Harvard Law School's corporate governance blog. I don't have the name of it exactly uh, off the top of my head here. But she pointed out that Exxon spent roughly $30 to $35 million fighting this. And perhaps, maybe, that 30 or $35 million might have been better spent uh, hiring, I don't know, McKinsey or one of those other overpriced consulting firms to help you figure out your strategy and not make this the hill that Exxon's board was going to die on, because die they did, and now at least two of them aren't going to be there for version 2.0 of the board, um, and potentially a third one is going to wind up uh, losing their board seat over this, and you know, you've got more activists on there. So, I think Exxon is a very interesting case. I don't think it's going to be the last. I don't know that we'll see a lot that are as high profile, but wow, that was something. Um, and then Tom, your point about the European banks being directed to, or coming up with more plans to inject ESG and climate change concerns into their financing decisions, that is of interest to me because that is pretty much what the Biden administration has just proposed to do. Uh, they issued an executive order looking at climate change, uh, trying to force climate change issues through, through the financial system, and that's one of the plans that's going to come out in the next several months, uh, where part one of the directives in the executive order is for the Treasury Secretary and the Fed and other banking regulators to look at how climate change risks will pose systemic risks to the financial sector, and therefore, what regulations might be necessary to counter that. Um, it's very clever. It's I would call it asymmetric regulation because if you regulate how the banks are going to give out money and tailor it towards climate change issues, everybody who needs money from the banks, which is a large number of companies, they suddenly have to start thinking about ESG as well. So could you see something like um, a financing package from a bank where the interest rate fluctuates depending on your achievement of certain ESG goals. Yeah, yeah you could see that. You already do see that on a voluntary basis. Um, advanced Micro Devices out in Idaho, They, I saw something in the news there where they just did a financing deal with a large bank where the variable interest rate varies depending on uh, Advanced Micro's hitting of certain ESG targets. Uh, So you might see something more like that. And what if uh, the Treasury Secretary and the Fed suddenly say that that's going to be the norm rather than the exception, that you're going to have to think that through uh, as you get a loan package from the commercial banks? I could see something like that coming to the United States in the next year or two. Uh, So there's all sorts of ways that this is definitely going to creep into the corporate sector, I think, to a wider degree than we understand right now and probably sooner than we think. So the
0: uh, Harvard Law Review uh, post that you referenced, Matt, is found on the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. It's uh, entitled Memo yep. to Corporate Directors, Three Lessons from the ExxonMobil Activist Victory. Uh, we're going to link to that because it just is an excellent post. But uh, let me pick up on the phrase you t- – uh, I believe you used asymmetrical regulations. And we've had uh, – and you've written quite a bit about recent speeches, particularly from – uh, SEC Commissioner uh, Allison Heron Lee. And uh, one of the, her most recent speeches, she laid out a framework that what the SEC was asking for uh, uh, was really not something new. In fact, she titled it uh, Four Myths, I think, uh, yeah. and then went forward to at least put forward uh, a process to debunk those myths myths. Uh, Do you see the SEC really utilizing the current framework of disclosure requirements in place to uh, push forward this climate change agenda, or do you think they're going to have to write some new regs and uh, go through the whole comment process?
1: I think they're going to do new regs and go through the whole comment process. Um, I think that this principles-based disclosure regime that, the former chairman, Jay Clayton, tried to do during the Trump administration. Like, come on, man, that's, that's not enough. Um, but I do think that what will happen is that the SEC is going to say, you must use a recognized framework for ESG disclosures. I suspect that they will point to the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which isn't, I would say it's semi-prescriptive. Uh, it isn't a fixed set of ESG disclosures for all companies. It is a robust and very versatile framework of disclosures depending on your industry. And then you find your industry, you find which ones, uh, uh, materi- which items you need to track, and then the F- SASB framework tells you certain things that you'd want to disclose depending on your industry. I think the SEC will point to something like that. Um, I think the SEC is talking about this more expansively than just climate change. But I think climate change will be one of the first things, but we also have to remember the S and the G part as well. Um, and then what I f- was really most intriguing to me about Alison Heron Lee's speech is that this was the most heavily footnoted speech I have ever seen from an SEC commissioner. And I've read a lot of them at this point in my life. Uh, it had, I think, something like 50-odd footnotes for almost every single sentence she made, but To me, it really read like clearly the SEC knows they're going to adopt some sort of ESG rule and that conservatives or Republicans will immediately move to sue in court to block this. And so Alison Heron Lee's speech is really a rebuttal to all of that. And clearly lays out in her view, at least, that under the law, of course, the SEC has the right to do this. It has the power and authority to do this. And anybody can see it, and then it's going to wind up like being in somebody's, you know, rebuttal to the Republicans' motion to dismiss when this finally does hit court. Um, they know they're going to be challenged in court on this, and I think the SEC is going to move very deliberately to make sure that when the court cases come, that they will be able to prevail and make these ESG disclosure, uh, enhanced disclosures. They're going to make it stick. Um, they're not naive about what's going to happen after they have that three-two vote which it's going to be a three, two vote. We all know this. Um, Once they force this through, they're going to be, I hope, I think in a position to defend themselves in court, because that's exactly where this is going to go.
0: That's, that seems like a good place uh, to end this podcast, but I'm sure we'll be visiting on this topic uh, quite a bit down the road.
1: All right, Tom. Thank you.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We're going to link to Matt's blog post on this issue, which I know you will enjoy. This month on The Compliance Life, I feature Gabe Hidalgo. Gabe has an unusual journey to the CCO chair. It's largely based on his geographic upbringing as a New Yorker fascinating exploration of a compliance after the time of 9-11. I know you'll enjoy it. Also premiering this month on the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a bi-monthly podcast where I visit with Compliance Week Editor-in-Chief Dave LaForte on some of the top stories reported on by Compliance Week during the month. Check it out on the first and last Friday of each month.